Are you a Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan? Are you a New Yorker? Do you plan to attend this year's New York Comic Con? If so, then you've got to check out our exclusive live show, NYCC Presents Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science. Join all three of us as we record a live podcast about the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. It all goes down Friday, October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right before us, so you can really double down. Learn more and buy your tickets today at newyorkcomiccon.com slash nycc hyphen presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, this is going to be part two of our two-part series on Julian Jaynes and the bicameral mind and the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind. So as this is part two of a two-part episode, if you haven't heard part one yet, you should go back and listen to that one first. Uh, Sometimes we say, you know, if you feel like jumping right in and go for it, this is one where I feel like you're really going to have a hard time following us if you haven't heard part one yet. Yeah, because that's going to be where we explain what Julian Jane's main hypothesis is and how he arrived at it. And then in the second episode, we're going to be talking about evidence for it from the ancient world and from the modern world. Yeah, this episode is going to be full of like falling kingdoms and whispering statues and other great stuff. But you need that first episode to understand it. Now, as with the first episode, we want to make clear that we're not necessarily endorsing this hypothesis. This is a very controversial hypothesis. It's not something that is at all considered proven mm-hmm. or even necessarily uh, very well attested by evidence. It's something that is controversial, but very fascinating, and I think worth exploring as a hypothetical. Yeah, it is a it is a radical hypothesis. And if nothing else, it is just a fascinating thought experiment. So as we discuss it again, you're going to hear us uh, discussing it as if it was fact, as if this is actually how ancient people thought. Uh, but that is uh, just part of our exploration of the hypothesis. Now, to briefly recap the core of Julian Jaynes theory. And we should say uh, Julian Jaynes. When did he live? Uh, 1920 through 1997. Yeah. So 1920, 1997, Julian Jaynes was an American psychologist. He's primarily known for this book that was published in 1976 called The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And the thrust of that book is until about 3000 years ago, human beings were not conscious. They did not possess consciousness in the way we do today. And around that time, roughly 3,000 years ago, modern human consciousness began as a cultural invention, probably in Mesopotamia, that spread around the world over time. And before that time, for thousands of years, almost all humans were not conscious in the way we are, but instead were unconscious beings commanded in all novel behaviors by hallucinated voices that they called gods. Or another way of putting it, and uh, and James himself put it this way, everybody was schizophrenic. Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, so schizophrenia, as James imagines it, is one form or a modified version of a regression to this bicameral mind state that used to be the norm for how humans in ancient civilizations lived. And so this norm would be that most of the time you would be going around unconsciously behaving out of habit. You know, you'd have stimulus response behaviors and you would have habitual behaviors that you would enact. And this would serve 
to do most things that would be, you know, recurrent repetitive behaviors over the day. But whenever something new happened, whenever you needed to make a decision Mm -hmm. and there was a stress point induced by that decision, you would be told what to do by a hallucinated auditory voice that you would perceive as a god and that you would enact that. Now, this is, as we said, a radical hypothesis. Yeah, because, again, the idea here is that everybody heard these voices, that this was the universal human experience. This was the norm. Right. And so, obviously, I mean, that that sounds kind of crazy to us now. Like, what? Really? Could, Could that be true? So if there is any truth to Jane's theory, and as we said before, we're not necessarily endorsing it as true, just entertaining it as an interesting hypothesis, we should be able to find some evidence of that theory. And so we can look at psychiatry and we can look at neuroscience and we can look at evidence from the ancient world. And today we're going to start by looking at evidence from the ancient world, from history, from archaeology, from ancient literature. If there was a bicameral mind state, this divided mind state where one half of the brain spoke to the other as the voice of a god and commanded the unconscious other half, we should be able to see that in the behaviors of ancient peoples and the traces left of those behaviors. Right. So a lot of this episode is going to be uh, Joe and I discussing uh, some of the examples that uh, James brings up in the book. We can't possibly touch on all of the examples because no. much of the book and much of the, the real joy of the book is, uh, is is him bringing up these various examples from uh, from historical accounts, from archaeology, from literature, and using that to uh, support the idea of the bi- bicameral mind. Yeah, and one of the pleasures of the book is uh, e- even if Jane's hypothesis does turn out to be entirely incorrect, you know, mm-hmm. if there never was any bicameral mind, uh, if consciousness is not a recent invention, if he's wrong about all that, it's still a fascinating book yeah. just because of uh, the way he pulls in so many different disciplines and ranges throughout history, incorporating evidence in such a, a an amazing and fascinating way. All right. Well, let's jump into it a bit here and start discussing some of the evidence that James uh, brought up in the book. OK, well, one of the things that we probably should be able to think about is. If ancient peoples perceived auditory hallucinations that they regarded as gods and these gods told them what to do, there should be some evidence of this in what traces they left of their relationship to the gods they believed in, right? Yeah, and one of those examples, James argues, is the positioning of the houses of the gods. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is the basic idea. Well, t- Today you travel to a big city. Let's say you go to uh, Washington, D.C., Okay. All right. This is our example, not Jane's. So I'm in Washington. All right. And you seek out the grandest, most centralized home, the one that just really stands out from the rest. It's the most protected. It has the, you know, the, the, the most central status of any other, uh, 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 habitat. Okay. So I'm imagining it is the home of an extremely tall, thin person that stands looking out over the water. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one, one interpretation. No, wait. That thing isn't a home, is it? No, it, well, it's not a home, but I mean that is an example of a of a building of prominence uh-huh. with a with a statue in it, which kind of gets into some additional arguments that we're going to make here. But no, 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 you, you'd expect to find the home of a king, right? Yeah, yeah, you would. That's the thing, right? You would want to. You would expect. All right, this is the center of the town. Mm-hmm. The whole town is built around this. It occupies a spatial center as well as just the center of meaning and purpose. Right. Or maybe, sorry, that was probably my sexism talking to a king or a queen. In any case, yes. you would expect the the ruling person to live there. 
But what if you entered into this grand building at the center of the city and you found that it was home only to a, quote, hallucinated presence? Mm. Perhaps a statue of that presence in the case of Abraham Lincoln, if you will, uh, but still, uh, in, for our purposes here, an unreal entity, a god, a goddess. Um, you can also look to, to cities in which a church still occupies the central ground. And James argues that this is an echo, perhaps an echo of the bicameral past. Mm, so why would that why would that be evidence of a bicameral past to find churches or temples at the center of a city as opposed to the, the house of a king? Well, the idea here is that the voice occupied the center of our thoughts. And so, too, it occupied the center of the town or the city and that the house of the god or the house of the gods was quite literally the house of the gods. Yeah, yeah, this is true. So if uh, I remember hearing when I was a kid, people saying, you know, uh, be be respectful when you're in church because it's God's house. Mm-hmm. But the churches I was going to didn't literally believe that the God they worshipped lived in the church. That was just where humans congregated to worship. That's not so much the case in ancient religions. It really does seem like in many ancient religions, the place of worship or the, the, you know, the sacred building was literally where the God inhabited. Yeah, where the God inhabited. And then as things uh, sort of go on, the place where God may visit, the place where God may be uh, contacted. Yeah. So he draws on examples from the God houses at Jericho, uh, the ziggurat of Ur, which we uh, discussed in our uh, Tower of Babel episode. Uh-huh. Uh, as well as uh, the city of uh, Hattasis, the Bronze Age capital of the Hittite Empire. Uh, and in the latter, this was actually a mountain shrine with images of the overwatching gods rather than a city center. But he said it's kind of an exception that uh, that also lines up with the argument. Hmm. He also looks to the, uh, the Olmec and Mayan empires as uh, bicameral Mesoamerican empires due to the presence of, quote, huge, otherwise useless, centrally located buildings. And chief among these, the Pyramid of Teotihuacan in modern Mexico. And I love how he mentions, you know, otherwise useless buildings because this touches on, on our discussions in the Tower of Babel episode regarding the ziggurats. A lot of our, our study of the past has been us trying to figure out what was this for? What yeah. p- purpose? And a lot of times we try and figure out a practical purpose. You know, what purpose did this structure have? Absolutely. I mean, these building projects consumed vast resources. I mean, to, to build the most prominent and, and highest and well-defended building in the middle of, of uh, an inhabited space, that just seems like why would you waste that on being there for a being that is not that does not physically need a house. Yeah, unless you are a people for whom the voice of God is real. Yeah. Again, this is just the, the wonder of this theory is that it turns so much of ancient history on its head. Uh, and, and then also, uh, you know, more recent history as this is all an echo of the past. Now, in the previous episode, we pointed out that, uh, you know, the, the, bi- the voice of the bicameral mind, it is, uh, it's coming in to help you deal with novel experiences that pop up right. and how it, it might be helpful, but it might also be destructive. Well, in the same way that a conscious person can make good decisions or can make bad decisions, right. the God guiding the behaviors of the unconscious bicameral person, if this person ever existed, could be giving good advice or bad advice. I mean, it's based on the, uh, the integrated powers of the brain in both cases. It's just that is it consciously happening or is it being delivered to you as a command that must be obeyed? 
Yeah, uh, and and along these lines, he attributes the construction of ancient Mesoamerican cities that are located in inhospitable areas, such as you know on top of a mountain or uh, in the middle of a swamp, on the you know on the the, the side of a cliff. Uh, he says that, uh, uh, that that these are areas that yeah again were inhospitable and they uh, may have been abandoned at some point later on, uh, and this is because they were linked to the commands of quote hallucinations, which in certain periods could be not only irrational, but downright punishing. Now, that's possible, but it's also possible that we in the modern world are just not seeing correctly what the benefits of these spaces were. That's right. I mean, we're always working with imperfect data. Um, He does not reference this, but I couldn't help but think of uh, Montezuma Castle in modern Arizona. These were cliffside uh, dwellings of the uh, Sinagua culture that were abandoned around 1425 CE uh, after centuries of occupation. Now, now, various explanations for the abandonment of Montezuma Castle include uh, drought, uh, de- uh, resource depletion, tribal conflict, and interestingly enough, re- just religious inclination to move. Yeah. Now, you can get into a discussion of, of how that would possibly line up with uh, James's timeline for the bicameral mine. But uh, he does uh, uh, point out that by the time the Incans encountered Europeans in the 15th century, uh, there was perhaps a combination of things bicameral and things proto-subjective. Subjective. Yeah, and th- that is uh, one feature of his theory, that for a long period of time, it wasn't just like everyone was bicameral and then everyone was conscious. Mm-hmm. You had a long period of the slow death of bicameral society turning into uh, or being taken over by conscious people. Yeah, you know, this makes me think of uh, shows like Game of Thrones and other fantasy worlds where magic slowly bleeds out of the world Mm -hmm. because that's essentially the argument here is that over time, fewer and fewer people are hearing the voice voices of the gods. Fewer people are hearing the voices of the spirits uh, of the departed loved ones, etc. And yet they're surrounded by the cultural memory of people who did hear the voices yeah. of the gods or people who still hear the voices of the gods today, even though they can't. So you have this society in which there are conscious people who uh, are, are constantly being reminded that they could be in contact with the gods, but they're not. And this, I imagine, is very distressing and frustrating to these people. And, you know, this is also interesting in that you eventually have this clash between the Inca Empire and the Spanish Empire. Uh, and he says that this was as close to close to anything in our history as uh, to a meeting of these two different minds of uh, the bicameral mind and the conscious mind, like two different cultures uh, encountering each other. Um, and, and yet he points to a number of different arguments for and against uh, the Inca Empire uh, being a bicameral empire. Well, it could have been an empire in transition, as many of these others were for so long. Yeah. I think basically he says that he believes that if there was a transition from a bicameral society to a conscious society, that it began in Mesopotamia about uh, you know roughly 1000 BCE, mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, a few hundred years on each side. It was a slow transition and spread around the world from there. Yes. So w- with the Inca in particular, he um, he points out that on one hand, uh, the administrative demands in politics were probably beyond something that a purely bicameral culture could handle. Yet they had a god king who was the Inca mm-hmm. uh, among um, and there were, um, you know, other aspects of uh, bicameral culture as well. Uh, and, and these may have been, again, to your point, mere traditional echoes of the past. But he points out that uh, that you you had these gold and jeweled spools that uh, members of the, the top of uh, Inca hierarchy, they wore in their ears and sometimes with images of the sun on them, that these may have uh, indicated that those same ears 
we're hearing the voice of the sun. Since the sun was a god. Yeah, yeah. So th- he spends a lot of time with various examples discussing the importance of eye symbolism, ear symbolism, as uh, it, as showing uh, th- that uh, that the individual or the statue is somehow involved in speech or hearing. Now, one of the things I wanted to revisit from our last episode is just the idea that Jane's is not necessarily saying that, for example, the bicameral mind is not as good as the conscious mind. I know we with our conscious bias, uh, you know, would naturally kind of feel that way, but it's not necessarily that conscious minds are better or more valuable or even smarter. I mean, that's not just, that's just not necessarily the case. It's that they have different adaptive strengths. And so having different strengths, a, a sudden clash of a conscious culture against a bicameral culture could be very disastrous for one or the other. Yeah, I mean, this is this is basically the, the, the key example of an outside context problem in our world. And uh, and Jane's has a just a, a beautiful little description of how this would have gone down, uh, assuming that this is a meeting of a bicameral or partially bicameral culture in the Inca and a conscious culture in that of uh, the Spaniards. He says, quote, it is possible that it was one of the few confrontations between subjective and bicameral minds that for things as unfamiliar as Inca Atahuapa was confronted with, these rough, milk-skinned men with hair drooling from their chins instead of from their scalps so that their heads looked upside down, clothed in metal with avertive eyes, riding strange llama-like creatures with silver hooves, having arrived like gods in gigantic wampas, uh, tiered like Makagan temples over the sea, which to the Inca was unsaleable, that for all this there were no bicameral voices coming from the sun or from the golden statues of Cuzco in their dazzling towers, not subjectively conscious, unable to deceive or to narratorize out the deception of others, the Inca and his lords were captured like helpless automatons. Oh, man. It's a horrible thing to imagine as, I mean, reading anything about the European conquest yeah. of the Americans <laughs> is always a, like a, a horrible thing to Yeah, to, yeah to you don't have to, have to imagine a, a separate state of mind for it to be a, a rather horrific uh, uh, encounter. But, but yeah, that is one of the features of his hypothesis is so one of the things that consciousness gives us is a capability for treachery yes that really the bicameral person is not very much capable of treachery i mean they can't prolong a deceptive behavior right Mm -hmm. Um, because they can't run this internal narrative of how they should behave if they were to believe one thing versus how they you know really what goal they'll be working towards secretly It, it just doesn't seem like that works out very well but these conscious people are capable of extreme deception and treachery and the ability to just be jerks. Yeah. All right. Now, another area that uh, th- that he brings up is that of uh, essentially the loved dead. He points to the burial of the dead as if they were still alive as mm-hmm. being a uh, key evidence for by the bicameral mind. So we've covered a number of different mummification practices on the show over the years. So I think everyone here knows the drill. The corpse as an astronaut on a cosmic journey to the other side. Uh, you know, there's some sort of an elaborate tomb. Maybe you fill that tomb with items that that individual loved in life and therefore might continue to need on a trip. And then beyond that, you may even supply them, as we see in the case of Egyptian tombs, with foodstuffs, with with perishable goods to uh, to, to aid them in the journey. And the idea here is that 
it, this goes beyond the, the the mere idea that oh well they they liked a cheeseburger so let's put a cheeseburger in there as a you know a token as some sort of uh, just, just a, a tribute to them. It's the idea that that no, I still hear their voice. Right, they are still speaking to me. Even though the body has stopped moving, I will put a cheeseburger in there for them to eat. Exactly. Yeah. So we think of tokens to the dead today primarily as uh, Im- it's something representing the way the living feel. Yeah. But no, the belief here was that the dead person still needed that. Yeah. And he says that this spills over to the treatment of ordinary dead as well as royal dead in many of these ancient cultures. But the concept of burying the dead in massive tombs, preserving their bodies, providing them with physical luxuries and even food, uh, this is key. And, and, and in cases where there was no food, uh, such as the graves at uh, Larsa in Mesopotamia from around uh, uh, 1900 BCE, uh, he says there, these areas were foodless because the tombs were beneath human habitation so that the dead essentially still lived among the living. Yeah, like so, that they would wander up into the house and you would literally hallucinate them doing so. Yeah. And telling you what to do. Yeah. Now, James admits that grief could have been the core motivation in most of these rites. And certainly I think that's the way we think about it when we're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of ancient people. Right. I mean, another very plausible and perhaps the more probable answer is just that people wished their loved ones were still alive. Yeah. And wanted to behave as if they could be. Now, yeah. Now, he argues that grief alone wouldn't be able to account for all of these practices. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think it depends on your example and, uh, and, you know, what your experience with bereavement is. I think yeah. a, a lot of us can attest that, yeah, that, that, uh, the, the loss of a loved one or even the loss of just a, you know, a, a loved celebrity mm-hmm. in many cases can, can have a big impact, a huge impact on your life. So, uh, yeah, I don't know to what extent I completely agree with that assessment, but I still think it's a, it's an interesting case to be made. Yeah. I mean, in a bicameral culture, you could imagine that uh, w- when Prince died, everybody would still be hearing him sing into their ear. Yeah, because what, he's still alive. what is Prince but a, a you know a, a royal of the, the modern age? Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will keep looking at evidence from the ancient world that may indicate a bicameral past. Okay, we're back. You know, Joe, you mentioned uh, uh, Statue of Lincoln. At the uh, the top of this episode, uh, I know. Oh, I you know what? I think I, I think I was talking about uh, what's it called? The obelisk, the Washington. Oh, Monument. I thought you meant when you, you were talking about a, a, a statue of a tall, slender uh, hum, uh, figure. <laughs> I thought you meant Lincoln. You uh, know, this being is a tall, slender dude. There's a miscommunication that ah. so easily comes with our uh, conscious uh, inability to communicate. Well, you've been you've seen Lincoln, uh, his statue in Washington. Yeah, he's just sitting in that chair. Yeah. But he probably has not spoken to you. And I mean, I don't mean that in a, uh, in a in a metaphorical sense or anything. I mean, that statue has not literally spoken. You have not heard the voice of that statue. No, but if I were a bicameral person, apparently I might. Like, I could go to pay reverence to that statue, but I wouldn't just be paying reverence. I'd be getting advice on what to do. Exactly. So that's the next point that, uh, that James uh, made, is that we have these idols uh, of the speaking stone that, uh, that that play into all these different cultures. So... Uh, we've already mentioned that, all right, your your father's voice is still in your head, like literally in your head. You're still hearing it after they have died. And right. Because of this con- confusion uh, uh, to take place about about the nature of death. Yeah. So your your parents die, yet you still hear their admonitions. Right. And then the, the king dies. You still hear the voice of the king. So while the first humans just raised up the corpses and skulls of their dead loved ones and their dead uh, uh, leaders uh, – and 
after that, we would turn more and more to, to various artificial likenesses of those individuals in varying degrees of detail. Mm-hmm. So we, we can find crude humanoid figurines dating back to oh, roughly uh, 5600 BCE in what's modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and rel- these are relics that were already ancient when the pyramids were built. Yeah. Now, Fraser uh, would have classified such uh, carvings as just fertility figures. But James points out that, <laughs> that that was the horse he was riding. He was trying to cram everything into those boxes. <laughs> yeah, but but James points out that you you can find them in very fertile parts of the world, such as with the Olmec civilization. And uh, he points to some of the the various um, attributes of these likenesses: open mouths, exaggerated ears, as if uh, the statue is going to listen to you and speak to you. Yeah. And uh, in the case of the Olmecs, uh, the creation of such uh, idols skyrocketed about 700 CE. But Jane's questions whether this was due to um, the, the cease of the voices. So did the voices stop so that you, you were crafting more and more of these details to try and bring them back? Mm-hmm. Or was it uh, due to a multiplication of them? So, you, you know, you're having to, to deal with the chaos of all these voices. Right. Now, he argues that many artifacts might have been, quote, semi-hallucinatory mnemonic aids for the non-conscious people. So it's also about remembering things and, uh, you know, adding order to life. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he argues that, uh, quote, some of these small objects we may be confident were capable of assisting with the production of bicameral voices. And he points to Mesopotamian eye idols from around 3000 BCE. And the eyes of these and numerous others were uh, figures were important uh, to focus uh, because of our evolved dependency on eye contact for communication. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then it's only left for the statue to speak to us. Right. And speak they did, uh, not only according to bicameral uh, mind theory here, but also just according to various accounts. Uh, uh, cuneiform literature, he writes, provides examples of speaking statues. Right. If you turn in uh, your Old Testament to Ezekiel 2121, there's uh, an example of a Babylonian king uh, who's said to speak to idols, which were known as uh, terep. Yeah, there there are all kinds of accounts of this throughout the ancient world of I mean, this is another case of like we were talking about in the last episode with ancient literature. You know, you read it and you feel you send something alien about the characters and you're like, is that something I'm just not getting that's getting lost in translation or were they truly alien to my mentality? A similar thing is going on with when it describes the practices of hearing God speak. You could think like, okay, well, I don't usually hear God speak. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe there's just something this, you know, this like a literary device or something that's getting lost in translation, or you could just say, no, I'll just take this literally. I'll take it at face value. Something was speaking to them and it was the other hemisphere of their brain. Yeah. So we get into this point where the, these statues, these artifacts become kind of focus points for the voice, like a, a, a way to, in a way, summon the voice. Yeah. Uh, even when it's not, uh, you know, d- directly um, uh, called up by a stressful circumstance. Uh, he, he has numerous uh, tidbits to support this. Uh, some of the, the really fun ones I found was he adds that, uh, quote, the conquered Aztecs told the Spanish invaders how their history began when a statue from a ruined temple belonging to a previous culture spoke to their leaders. Mm. So I, I just love the mental image of, um, you know, these tribal individuals coming across this statue built by someone else, and it, it, it summons the voices just to look at it. You can also imagine, though, how uh, 
if this model is correct, conscious people would react very negatively to encountering bicameral people and and the voices of their gods, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's another example he makes is that you have the Spaniards who, again, are conscious individuals steeped in Catholicism. Yeah. And they come in and uh, they encounter the native peoples and they actually reported that the people of, the, of Peru were, quote, commanded by the devil uh, in that, quote, the devil himself actually spoke to the Incas out of the mouths of their statues. Mm. So that could just be, you know, historical, yeah. cultural slander, uh, or it could be them trying to make sense of practices they saw. Yeah, I, you know, before really getting into the bicameral mind theory, I would have easily just said, well, that's just obviously just a bunch of xenophobic foreigners from another continent coming in and saying, oh, they have statues. They probably stand around listening to their voices and they obey the statues. Right. Um, I mean, either way, they are putting their their dominant racist yes. spin on it. Mm-hmm. But it could be that they were actually observing a practice. Yes. Now, again, we always get into the same situation, though. Were they, was this a practice that was based on, uh, on an existing bicameral experience or is it an echo of a bicameral past? Yeah, it, it could be either one if there's anything to this theory. Another thing that I think is one of the most important takeaways of this whole theory is that if Jane's is correct, it's not that people used to be more religious and now they're less religious. Mm-hmm. That's not the progression. It's that ancient bicameral religion and modern conscious religion are completely different types of things. Conscious religion requires an emphasis on things like faith and belief and organized systems of dogma. You know, they say, here's what we believe and here's why you should believe it. And so it's like regulated by ecclesiastical authorities. It's addressed to an object that is not immediately apparent. Not so for bicameral religion, right? Yeah. So bicameral religion would have had no need for the concept of faith because what's the point in telling people to believe in the gods that literally talk to them and appear before them all the time? That's right. I mean, the the gods are speaking to you. Household gods, household spirits are speaking to you. Uh, So you really there's not really any room to doubt there if doubt was even a thing that your mind can do. Yeah, I mean, our modern concept of religion, you could look at as something that came to exist after the disappearance of the direct experience of the gods. Yeah. Likewise, I mean, could could heresy even exist in such a world? Like everybody is, I mean, certainly you're, you're still going to have uh, you know, a structure to society, but everyone is hearing voices of the God. Everyone has, has their, their, their radio uh, you know, set to the other world. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is a world where the voices are speaking to everyone. Okay, I think we should look at one more thing uh, about features we see of the organization of ancient societies before we start to look at some ancient literature. So how about the theocratic organization of ancient society? What, what does that tell us about whether or not a bicameral mind ever existed, according to Julian Jaynes? Well, in this, we're getting into uh, a, a topic that we've discussed before, the idea of divine kings. Right. What does it mean that the king is either the you know the right-hand man of God, works for God, or in some cases is God. That's an important distinction and James makes that distinction. He, you know, there are two main types of kings for him, the steward king and the god king, right? That's right. The steward king, this is where the king is a stand-in for God and then the god king, the king is God. And uh, James believed that both types developed out of the more uh, primitive bicameral situation where a new king ruled by obeying the hallucinated voice of a dead king. Right. 
which sort of that gives you like the you know the the succession order right yeah in fact you're never really obeying you're never really obeying the new king you're always obeying the old king through a sort of intermediary and in this he, he i mean he even argues that the, the ziggurat centered civilizations of ancient mesopotamia that in these cases it's not you can't even really look at it like the human beings were the ones that were ruling like the ruling powers were the hallucinated voices of the various gods right so it was not uh, the the left brain or the dominant side of the brain of the actual king but it was the other hemisphere of their brain ruling the dominant side, ruling the people. Right. And uh, he also gets into how, you know, we've talked about, okay, you're reacting to statues, uh, humanoid figures. But on top of this, we also end up with all with additional uh, religious imagery, uh, symbology that's, that's, that's used, even written language. Uh, he points out that, quote, reading in the third millennium BCE may therefore have been a matter of hearing the cuneiform, that is, hallucinating the speech from looking at its picture symbols rather than visual reading of syllables in our sense. Oh, that's that's fascinating. So you think about how reading takes place for us today. It is largely an unconscious thing. If you're an adult that's been reading, not if you're a, a kid who's learning to read or if, you know, at any point in your life, if you're learning to read you do have to think about the constituent parts of words and sentences. Like mm-hmm. you have to sound them out and put them together in your mind using your conscious mind. Eventually reading becomes unconscious. I mean, I wonder if in this, in this bicameral framework, you would learn to read in an entirely unconscious way, the same way that maybe you get better at shooting basketballs or something in an unconscious way. Yeah. Yeah. I bet so. Now, now another thing, that, another uh, point that he makes about language is that uh, in reference to ancient Egyptians, uh, much like the, the language of the ancient Sumerians, he says that, that the, these languages were concrete from first to last and that interpretations uh, involving abstract thought, uh, these, are, these are modern modern intrusions and that basically the gods commanded rather than created. Yeah, uh, and we'll see that more when we look mm-hmm. at literature in the next section. Now, I, I think I made reference already to household gods and uh, household spirits. Right. You encounter these in a lot of different cultures. If it's not household gods, then maybe it's uh, you know uh, just a memorial of uh, various members of the family, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of those traditions still carry on to this day. But the idea here is that not everyone can hear the voice of the ruling god, right? That would seem to be kind of chaotic. If the if, Even if it's just a simple model of the previous dead king mm-hmm. speaking to the current king, you, I mean, it wouldn't make sense for everyone to hear that king's voice and have their authority, but everyone in this scenario, in the bicameral scenario, is hearing voices. So who are those voices? Well, there's a hierarchy of gods, isn't there? Exactly. Like, because there are different types of stressful situations. Mm-hmm. Imagine a scenario where one is cooking, uh, preparing a meal in one's hut, and um, let's say you've only got one piece of meat, yeah. and then you accidentally drop it onto the ground. There's a moment of panic. What do I do? Well, the household cooking god chimes in and says, take it and wash it in the river or something to that effect, you right. know, and the, and it's solved. So, so that's five second rule. Five second rule. <laughs> yeah. And so this would be the case of a of a lesser deity coming in and calling the shot. Yeah. You know, one of the things about ancient religion he mentions in the book that is very interesting is his discussion of the evolution of the concepts of the Ka and the Ba mm-hmm. in uh, in Egyptian theology where uh, oh it, it's hard to i guess we can't summarize it here but uh, if you get a chance to read the book yourself look out for that section it's really interesting uh it's it's about the way we you know words for theological concepts 
sort of uh, transition into other into having other meanings. Now, part of the whole timeline, of course, is that, as we've already stressed, the gods cease speaking to everyone after a while and then cease altogether for the most part. We'll get into the details of that as we uh, we go. But uh, but then when that happens, uh, there's a there's order collapses. Uh, Cultures uh, end up retreating into the jungles. And for many people, everything has to be built up again. Yeah. Uh, basically, the idea here is that the bicameral mind, this this whole system of hearing voices, this holds society together. Right. This is it, it's it's an instrument of social control. Yeah. And so it's it's like playing Jenga with gravity and then gravity goes away. And then how do you hold the blocks together? Well, then suddenly you have to come with new novel ways to do it, such as gluing them all together, I guess. Is so the political organization equivalent of that would be what? It would be brutal dictatorship? Yeah, things like brutal dictatorship have to step in. Uh, suddenly, you know, uh, you have all these wars and just total bloodshed occurring because the voices that organize society have have stopped speaking or have certainly stopped speaking uh, with enough regularity to hold everything together. Yeah. So in closing on this, he argues, quote, that man in his early civilizations had a profoundly different mentality from our own, that in fact men and women were not conscious as we are, were not responsible for their actions, and therefore cannot be given the credit or blame for anything that was done over these vast millennia of time, that instead each person had a part of his nervous system which was divine, by which he was ordered about like any slave, a voice or voices which indeed were what we call volition and empowered uh, what they commanded and were related to the hallucinated voices of others in a carefully established hierarchy. And this mindset would have, again, developed over the over the ninth century BCE to the second millennium uh, BCE, a gradual procession progression. Right. So that's the hypothesized era of the bicameral mind, which around the first millennium BCE starts to decompose and fall apart. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will look at signs of the bicameral mind in ancient literature. All right, we're back. All right, so obviously it would make sense that we'd see examples or the examples could be made uh, in literature because, uh, after all, the bicameral mind is, uh, is according to the theory, uh, according to the hypothesis here, an offshoot of the acquisition of language. Right. Jane says language makes it exist. So could you, could you look at ancient uses of language to find evidence of it? Uh, now, another thing that complicates this is that Jane's thinks that one of the causes of the decomposition of the bicameral mind into the conscious mind is the widespread introduction of written language. So hmm. this also writing ends up undermining the bicameral mind. But can we see signs of the bicameral mind in ancient literature? Uh, I think he's got some interesting stuff to talk about here. Yet again, I, I want to be clear that I'm not endorsing his theory as correct, but I do think some of his claims, especially about what we see in Greek literature, are fascinating and I, a little terrifying. I have to admit, when I was reading, you know, it kind of it kind of gave me the willies at various points to try to imagine ancient people ruled by by cameral mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when he started talking about the Iliad in particular, it, yeah. it kind of gave me chill bumps. Oh, totally. So the Iliad is one of Jane's chief examples of bicameral literature. So, of course, the Iliad, uh, if you if you never read it, it's an epic war poem that tells the story of an alliance of Greek kings and their warriors, primarily the warrior Achilles, laying siege to the city of Troy. This is the historical event now known as the Trojan War. And Jane's claims that the Iliad was developed by a group of oral storytellers or bards known as the Aoidi, and that's 
in contrast to sort of the traditional received knowledge that they were composed by an individual named Homer, I think it's probably more widely believed now that these are the works of many people over mm-hmm. time. But anyway, uh, that, that war took place about 1230 BCE, uh, clo- or sorry, it was first composed around the time the war, uh, took place around 1230 BCE. And it was first transcribed into written form around 900 or 850 BCE. And scholars may believe some different dates now, but that's what Jaynes is working with. So when we look at the thoughts and behaviors of characters in the Iliad, it should tell us something about the mental life of people who composed and wrote the story about 3,000 years ago. And when we examine this, what do we find? Well, Jaynes makes a really striking claim about the Iliad. It is a work of literature in which the characters are almost entirely devoid of anything recognizable as consciousness. You do not really see introspection in the Iliad. There are a few passages which serve as exceptions to this. Uh, generally, Jane's thinks that they look like late additions to the text or sign, or they could possibly be signs of early proto-conscious thought seeping through. But primarily, the characters of the Iliad do not introspect. They do not narratize. They do not seem to have conscious consideration. Instead, when they're faced with the need for novel behavior, what happens? They're told what to do by a god. A god makes them do it. Now, it's, it's generally when we look back on pieces of literature like this, we think, well, this is just this was a primitive form of literature. This was a this was a more archaic uh, um, you know, form of storytelling. Yeah, you see it as a literary device. Yeah, which it very well could be. It makes me think, you know, all these various bad films that you and I enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they're enjoyably bad because the craftsmanship isn't there at various levels. Uh-huh. Um if bicameral, if the bicameral mind hypothesis is true, could it be possible that that sometimes we love bad movies because they seem to have been created uh, by a bicameral mind? <laughs> I, I was with you every step of the way there, Robert. I can believe that there are movies that feel quite bicameral. Yeah, hmm. that feel as if they were like uh, dictated by a divine presence rather than consciously thought through. All right, but 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 back to the discussion here. So yeah, we have this this war going on. There's no introspection. There's nothing that resembles consciousness. Mm-hmm. And at all the pivotal plot points are punctuated by a god stepping in and saying, "Do this or do that." Yeah. So there might be like a scene where Achilles is going to reach out and kill his king Agamemnon, but instead it says a god grabs him and tell and makes him not do it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I would like to see more of that in our films, though, where yeah. you just have gods pop up and uh, direct the course of action. You know, even in the words of the Greek, Jane says, uh, we can see something of, of bicamerality here because there are Greek words that later come to be used to refer to consciousness. And they appear throughout the Iliad, but through contextual clues, we can tell that they mean something entirely different in the Iliad than what they mean when they later come to mean consciousness. For example, the word sihi, it's spelled psyche, you know, in Mm -hmm. the English pronunciation. Sihi, in later centuries, this clearly comes to mean consciousness or mind or soul. That's how it is used in Greek. But in the Iliad uh, phase, it appears to refer to something more like physical life substances. Jane says it means something more like blood or breath. Like if a soldier gets killed on the battlefield, his sihi bleeds out onto the ground. Hmm. 
or the word thumos. In later writings, Jane says this means something more like emotional mind or soul. In the Iliad, once again, it seems to have this base-level animal meaning. It's something more like animation or motion. Hmm. So when a soldier stops moving, the thumos goes out of his limbs. Uh, but it also seems to mean this weird kind of organ in the body that can be filled with the impetus for motion or activity. Next is nous. In later Greek, it certainly comes to mean consciousness. It's like a conscious mind. But in the Iliad, it appears to mean something much plainer. It means like sight or field of vision. So when you see something, it, the thing is in your noose. Now, this next point, this is the exact place where he really gave me the creeps and I, I got actual chill bumps. He points out that the Iliad, as well as uh, Greek art of the time, quote, shows man as an assembly of strangely articulated limbs, the joints underdrawn and the torso almost separated from the hips. It is graphically what we find again and again in Homer, who speaks of hands, lower arms, upper arms, feet, calves and thighs as being fleet, sinewy, in speedy motion, etc., with no mention of the body as a whole. Ooh. Yeah. So it's just this idea of of just these automatons waging war, uh, you know, killing uh, each other uh, with, without this concrete sense of self guiding it. It's yeah. so alien to comprehend. Oh, it really is. And so if you buy into Jane's theory uh, or if you just want to entertain it, as we are doing, th these characters simply do not seem to introspect. They argue, they rage, they desire, they act out on desires. But they don't seem to have access to a mind space where they can perform introspective metaphor-based activities like we described in the previous episode. They don't have access either to the conscious aspect of decision-making. Instead, when they got to make a novel decision, the Iliad is very clear about what happens. The god tells them what to do, and they do it. Maybe this is one of the reasons we like like a very classic action hero, you know, because it's like they don't think they just do. They are a man of action. They are a bicameral uh, hero. I mean, you sometimes do get that sense, right, that mm -hmm. there is a kind of there's a kind of unthinking charisma to the action hero in most action movies. Uh, I, I guess that is what you'd call that that man of action cliche. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I, I guess it technically usually is a man in these movies and he's got this kind of macho swagger that does not seem to involve thinking. It doesn't seem to involve self-reflection. They've just got this, uh, this like violent intuition. Can't be bargained with, can't be reasoned with and absolutely will not stop. I mean, this, this is the Terminator, <laughs> uh, in a nutshell. The, the Terminator is, is a, is a machine. Everybody was the Terminator in the Iliad. That's the, the scary part. Oh man. So what I, what I'm thirsting for now, it, it's almost like this theory is too interesting and I'm too tempted to want it to be true. So I, what I want now is for a great classic scholar to say, like, no, 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 he's got it all wrong. Here's why. Here's how you can definitely find lots of signs of consciousness in the Iliad. And they're not later editions. They are part of the original text. I want that. Mm -hmm. Or I don't want that. I feel like I need that. Yeah. Otherwise, I feel like I'm just buying into the idea that Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. It is just a, such a radical hypothesis. Okay, well, let's leave the Iliad and look at some other literature from the ancient world. Uh, how about Jewish literature? This is interesting. Uh, I had not run across uh, this before either. This is uh, so this deals with uh, uh, Elohim, 
Yeah, the Elohim, one of the names of God mm-hmm. used in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible, very often just translated as God, a singular, right? Right, but he argues that to translate it as merely God is to miss the plural nature of the word in Hebrew. Uh, it which, com- which is something I've independently read. Like yeah. Elohim is essentially a plural word, but it's rendered in the modern sense in a, as a singular word. Yeah, it says it, it comes from the root of to be powerful. But uh, better translations of uh, of Elohim might be the great ones, the prominent ones, the uh, majesties, the judges, the mighty ones, etc. Uh, and so these, uh, he argues, are the vo- could be the voice visions of the bicameral mind. And he also argues that one can really see the decline of the bicameral vision in the Bible. Now, this is yeah. – I really love this because he's basically talking about, all right, if you pick up the Old Testament and you read it uh, front to back, you can see this transition. So in, in the – he says, quote, in the true bicameral period, there was usually a visual component to the hallucinated, hallucinated voice, either itself hallucinated or as the statue in front of which, in front of which one listened. So – even as a modern reader of the Bible will find this, you go from a physical God who physically does stuff like kick people out of the garden or shut the door on the uh, the ark mm-hmm. to a God that merely speaks to everyone and a purely auditory God uh, that we account w- that we encounter with Moses, you know, with additional visual uh, flares here and there. And crucially, after that, a God of law and religion hmm. rather than of direct experience. So you go from this robustly imagined God who physically does stuff to a God who is a voice to a God who is not experienced directly and rather is experienced through his tradition of teachings and law. And so, um, so yeah, Jane's argues that the Hebrew Bible is essentially a long narrative of the, of the transition from myth to bicameral humankind to conscious humankind. And yeah. you can see the whole thing there. You've got the older prophets like Amos, who Jane's identifies as clearly bicameral to Ecclesiastes, who uh, James thinks the author shows all the markers of consciousness. And he, he claims you can also see this painful transition from bicameral society to conscious society in many aspects of the canon. A couple of examples. He says people are constantly begging for contact with a god or gods that no longer speak to them in the literature that he believes comes from the conscious period of this history. So one quote he gives from Psalm 42, and this is with the... Uh, the name of God rendered directly to the plural rather than the singular as it would usually be rendered. As the stag pants after the water brooks, so pants my mind after you, O gods. My mind thirsts for gods, for living gods. When shall I come face to face with gods? Yeah, it's almost like a like a gradual breakup story. Like mm-hmm. we used to, we used to see God all the time. We hung out. Mm-hmm. And now, yeah, we talk on the phone sometime, but it's not quite the same. And now it's like it won't even call. We just keep exchanging texts. And suddenly you know, that's all I have to go on. It's yeah. just the, the not even new texts, but the old texts. But then again, there are there are definitely in Jane's vision partisans of the conscious version of the religion that don't want anything to do with the direct experience version of the religion. Like he says that uh, there are many signs throughout the books of the Hebrew Bible that the bicameral people may have been actively persecuted by conscious people for religious reasons. I'll just read one quote. He says, quote, a further vestige from the bicameral era is the word ob, often translated as a familiar spirit. A man also or a woman that have an ob shall surely be put to death, says Leviticus 2027. And similarly, Saul drives out from Israel all those that had an ob in First Samuel. 
even though an ob is something that one consults with, uh, according to Deuteronomy 18.11, it probably had no physical embodiment. It is always bracketed with wizards and witches, and thus probably refers to some bicameral voice that was not recognized by the Old Testament writers as religious. Yeah, I mean, you get into this scenario where, you know, obviously the individuals who don't hear the voices, they built up all this this law and order based on the old texts yeah. and the old stories. It it becomes dangerous if other individuals are attempting to to add new material to it. Right. No, like, I'm hearing gods right now, and they're telling me something different. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the, the fact that the, the church that I attend, they have this saying, God is still speaking, mm-hmm. which as it's intended, the idea is God is still real and a part of everyone's lives. And, you know, this is not just a story. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's, it's kind of scary to think, well, God is still speaking. What's he going to say? Right. You know? <laughs> um, so I can <laughs> see where the conflict comes in. It could provide license for some very, uh, for some very disturbing content. Yeah. Or some great stuff. Yeah, know? indeed. Yeah. Uh, it's just sort of like it provides you with a blanket authorization for action that uh, is not so there if you have a written and codified law. So, again, all of this just ends up playing into the conflict of the downfall of the bicameral mind as the voices blink out and this uh, new system of, uh, of order and social stability has to take hold. So let's try to summarize real quick what Jaynes is saying is the basic contours of the, the transition through the bicameral period to the conscious period. Let's see. Robert, tell me what you think of this as I've tried to summarize his view. Okay. I think Jaynes argues that bicameral society emerged with language and the increasing size of tribal groups. So when one could encode mental content into grammatical sentences, it was possible to code action motivation efficiently through language. So you'd have a big group where your authority figure can't be around to constantly tell you what to do because the group's too big. Mm -hmm. So a command heard from one's parents or one's tribal chieftain is hallucinated to recur over and over again, providing continuous motivation for action. And this is the non-dominant hemisphere commanding the dominant hemisphere. This is the first version of bicamerality. Yes. So when you've got words and sentences that can be hallucinated. Then over time, these admonitory voices, eventually they become not just repetitive, but synthetic. So they're not just telling you what these authority figures have told you in the past, but they're telling you what these authority figures would command if they were present now. And of course, we know the mind has the power to synthesize information and imagine what somebody else would command. We do that consciously now, but here it's saying, what if the right hemisphere in in, uh, most people or the non-dominant hemisphere generally did that automatically, non-consciously? So over time, parents and chieftains die and their voices are still heard. Instead of internal copies of, of authority figures, they become imbued with disembodied authority. The voice itself provides inherent authorization, magical authority, as from a god. Then for a long time, bicameral society grows and develops, and bicameral people build technologies and kingdoms and begin to write works of ancient literature. But what happens to make it all disappear Essentially, his answer is a combination of catastrophe and literature. Would you agree with that, Robert? Yeah, that seems to be the the basic idea, catastrophe and literature. Yeah. 
the the story of the story of our lives. Yeah, that 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 is the roof collapsing on the bicameral mind. So the catastrophe he singles out is the widespread failure of civilization throughout the Eastern Mediterranean close to the end of the second millennium BCE. Uh, this is a, a period that's coming off of what's now referred to as the Late Bronze Age collapse, where ancient empires fell apart and dispersed and people were displaced and there was a lot of war and raiding and uh, and collapse of infrastructure trade was interrupted education stifled and it led to what some would consider a dark age of the ancient world and he also argues that uh, a certain a small amount of natural selection may have come into play as well because as all of this is going on and the enormous enormous bloodshed that's playing out here at the end of the second century bce those who had the best chance to survive were those who could resist the commandments of the gods and the the you know the voice of compulsion right who were more adaptable and could narratize out solutions to problems and who had the ability to practice prolonged deception and treachery yes that's another huge um, idea here so yeah so he's got a summary of of the several factors he thinks led to in this period around the eastern mediterranean and mesopotamia the collapse of the bicameral mind and and the beginnings of widespread consciousness in culture. So what are, what are these main things he offers? He's talking about, first of all, one, the weakening of the auditory uh, by the advent of writing. Okay, a good example would be the invention of written law, right? Clearly distinguishing acceptable from non-acceptable behavior in a way that does not require the intervention of an internal god. Yeah, we got these tablets here. He doesn't have to speak to you all the time. Just refer to the tablets. Yeah. This is how I feel about any kind of a PowerPoint presentation. Just give me the PowerPoint. I don't need the voice of God telling me the things. Just give me a list. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, what's the next thing? Uh, number two, the inherent fragility of hallucinatory control. Okay, yeah, we can see that there's some instability in the system there. Number three, the unworkableness of gods in the chaos of historical upheaval. Okay, so the gods prevented pro- uh, they, they caused problems when co- when society and hierarchy was falling apart. Yeah, and again, the voice of the gods was just was not actually the voice of a divine being with superior knowledge. It was still originating from within the individual. Right. Okay, the fourth one. The fourth one is the positing of internal cause in the observation of difference in others. Oh, okay. So you see other people are behaving differently and you begin to wonder if maybe they're just behaving on their own and not being commanded by gods, maybe undermining your own authorization of God belief. Yeah, I can see where it would be. Um, I mean, it would it, it would uh, it would be contagious in that in that respect. Yeah. Uh, number five, the acquisition of narratization from epics. Ah, the introduction of stories. Mm-hmm. Number six, the survival value of deceit, which oh, we yeah. already touched on. And number seven, uh, a modicum of natural selection, which we also uh, discussed here. But to be clear, I, I think Jaynes is primarily thinking about these transitions in mindset, not as changes in the physical brain brought about by, you know, mutation and natural selection, though there might be a little bit of selection towards levels of predisposition for it. But he's primarily thinking about this as cultural change, right? That there there are cultures of bicamerality and cultures of consciousness. Yes. All right, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we are going to jump into modern traces of the bicameral mind. All right, we're back. So we've examined the evidence that Jane's claims to offer for the existence of a bicameral mind in history and his conception of how the bicameral mind arose and then collapsed into societies based on conscious mentality. So 
if there truly was a bicamerality in the past, if our brains are still so wired as to be perhaps capable of bicameral culture in the present, if we just practiced it, what would the evidence of that be? Well, you would think that there'd be some practices in human behavior that would give you evidence that we used to be bicameral and that we could still be bicameral if we tried. That's right. And he uh, first of all, he makes uh, he makes some examples out of uh, religion. So at this point, I think everyone can pretty well imagine the sorts of religious examples that James is going to make. After all, we've been discussing the trance-like nature of bicameral existence uh, and the commanding words of corpses and statues, mm-hmm. you know, all, you know, very magical scenarios that we can imagine lining up with both religious stories and religious rite. So expectantly, he points to spirit possession. This is a topic that we come back uh, to on a few different uh, episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and it ranges from demonic possession across various cultures to uh, you know tribal African beats that uh, threaten Carl Jung's sanity and more positive forms of spirit uh, possession such as oracles, which mm-hmm. uh, which uh, Jane spends a lot of time with. Um, we have a recent episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that covers the the Thai tattoo festival in which uh, uh, an, uh, an animal tattoo ends up overtaking the individual. So we have examples of this this throughout different cultures. Uh, the speaking of tongues uh, and similar religious experiences may also play into this. And, of course, we have examples of this in uh, ancient writings as well. So as early as uh, 4th century BCE, Socrates wrote of God-possessed men. So and clearly, like, that's not the kind of thing you would uh, necessarily speak about if, uh, if if you were immersed within a bicameral uh, a world anymore, right? right? Um, yeah, these might be more vestiges of the bicameral culture. Right. And Jane's points to uh, a number of different examples, uh, mainly those dealing with Greek oracles, mm-hmm. uh, with the idea being that the oracle, the individual here, would have would have ramped themselves up. They basically ramped up right hemisphere activity in relation to the left uh, as a result, as a response to complex ritual stimuli. Right. You know, the use of all these various, you know, we've talked about statues and language and, and all of, uh, all of these, uh, aspects playing into past bicameral, uh, experiences. And therefore the idea here is that even, uh, as we're shifting out of the bicameral age, uh, even as the bicameral age is behind us, you have conscious individuals who are able to sort of resurrect the bicameral experience, yes. enter into trance-like states, etc., by engaging in these rituals. Yeah, and these would be rituals where they channel the output of what Jane's identifies as, in most people, the right hemisphere uh, speech-associated sections. Of course, right uh, speech usually coming from the left hemisphere. So it would be like the voices of the gods that spoke in the bicameral minds of the ancients, but speaking out through the mouths of these oracles and prophets. And you know what? Uh, those uh, oracles and prophets, they didn't necessarily speak in a, even in a commanding tone. In many cases, they may have, uh, they may have sung. Yeah. And so this is a really interesting section James gets into in the, in the third book of his book where he, he talks about the evidence of past bicamerality in poetry and music. So remember that Jane's neurological hypothesis uh, is that the bicameral mind consisted of the non-dominant hemisphere, which is the right brain in most people, speaking directly as an auditory hallucination to the dominant hemisphere, which is the left brain in most people. Keep that in mind here. That's right. Now, his 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 thesis here is, quote, the first poets were gods. Poetry began with the bicameral mind. The god side of our ancient mentality, at least in a certain period of history, usually or perhaps always spoke in verse. 
This means that most men at one time throughout the day were hearing poetry of a sort composed and spoken within their own minds. That's terrifying and beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> That, that kind of sums up a lot of the bicameral uh, hypothesis in general. So evidence is scant for this, but he argues that, quote, individuals who remained bicameral into the conscious age, that these uh, individuals continue to express the voice of God or gods in poetry. Uh, the, so, you know, the Indian Veda, uh, dictated by the gods, uh, the oracle at Delphi, early Arabic poets, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, this concerns music, too, because early poetry was musical in nature, James uh, says. Absolutely. I mean, you could still say that poetry is musical in nature, especially insofar as it invokes any kind of scanning or rhythm. That's right. And speech is a function, again, primarily of the left uh, uh, cerebral hemisphere, but song is primarily a function of the right hemisphere. Poetry begins as the divine speech of the bicameral mind. That's an interesting hypothesis in itself. Now, there's a, he presents a fair amount of, uh, of evidence for this, uh, which I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll through here. Joe, jump in, uh, as we go. Hit me, man. All right. So, first of all, many elderly patients who have suffered cerebral hemorrhages on the left hemisphere, uh, such that they cannot speak, they can still sing. Huh. We also have the WADA test to determine a person's cerebral dominance. This is when sodium amytal is injected into the carotid artery on one side, putting the corresponding hemisphere under heavy sedation, mm-hmm. and the other side remains awake. So in this case, case if the left hemisphere is sedated, the patient can't speak, but they can sing. If the mm-hmm. right hemisphere is sedated, the patient can't sing, but they can speak. So like the centers for speech and singing are lateralized. Right. And the situation is more pronounced in cases where there's actual physical damage to one hemisphere or the other or, you know, it's it's completely removed. Also, electrical stimulation of the right hemisphere in regions adjacent to the posterior temporal lobe often produces hallucinations of singing and music. Crazy. Uh, oh, and he also he, he presents uh, an experiment that you can try. He says, says that uh, you can prove the, lat- the, the uh, laterality of music yourself. Try hearing different musics on two earphones at the same intensity. You will perceive and remember the music on the left earphone better. This is because the left ear has greater neural representation on the right hemisphere. Mm. Now, he points out that uh, Plato spoke of poetry as possession. Sure did. Yeah, he said poets uh, then, around uh, 400 BCE, uh, were comparable in mentality to the oracles of the same period and went through similar uh, psychological transformation when they performed. Mm. And then there's this idea. We've all heard talk of the muses, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, so ancient epics might start saying, like, sing, muse, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So the author is telling their personal Comp- composition god to start going. Yeah. Now when we talk about the muses, we're, you know, we're just talking about inspiration yeah. or, you know, or attention even, or just, you know, the will to get a project done. Yeah. It's a literary device we think of. Yeah. But, but back, back uh, then the argument is, is that the, the bicameral human would literally need to hear the voice of the muse. Yeah. The muse was literally real. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just something they imagined. It was something they experienced. Though it all was in the brain. Right. 
Now he points out that by the 6th century BC, the poet is no longer in, just naturally imbued with their song. They have to learn the gift of the muse in mm. order to hear it. Uh, so we see you know, this idea that the voice is becoming harder and harder for everyone to hear. So this might be kind of like how the oracles of these later periods living in conscious societies have to go through elaborate rituals to get into the altered state of consciousness where they channel their non-dominant hemisphere and let the voice of God speak. That's right. And uh, he says that uh, in the 5th century BCE, we hear the uh, the very first hints of poets uh, being peculiar with poetic ecstasy. That's, that's his <laughs> quote there. So, Oh, I, I want to use that from now on. If I'm like trying to get some writing done and somebody <laughs> interrupts me, I'm like, hang on, I'm being peculiar. Yeah, so it, it basically just gets harder and harder to hear the voices of the gods until you're having to essentially make up the words yourself. Yeah. It it reminds me a lot of, of how magic works in Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. Because uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, you basically have three different types of magic users. Okay. You have the warlock who works their magic via enslavement to a god or godlike being. So that's a bicameral being. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that would be the bicameral uh, experience. A sorcerer learns to better channel magic that naturally emerges from their being. So this is like a transitional yeah. uh, being. This is like one of the oracles in the late antiquity. Yeah, like it still flows through them. It still can flow through them, but they have to manage it. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you have the arcane wizard who has to master the workings of magic through study and academic effort alone. So these are the pathetic poets of the modern era who have to consciously compose their works. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the same way that I th- within Dungeons and Dragons, you can you can have that. You can have sort of the attitudes of, well, the wizard is, and this is also kind of based on attitudes involving witches and wizards in, uh, in, in the real world in earlier periods. But there's the idea that the, the arcane wizard is a master of, of these forces mm-hmm. where lesser models are, um, uh, you know, the magic is a master of them, which is, you know, not unlike the comparison between the bicameral and the conscious human. Right. And of course, the idea is as uh, conscious society exists for longer and longer and the bicameral society goes farther and farther into the past, our ability to access these states of consciousness to be an oracle or to be a muse possessed poet gets further and further from our grasp. Exactly. He writes, and then the muses hush and freeze into myths. Nymphs and shepherds dance no more. Consciousness is a witch beneath whose charms pure inspiration gasps and dies into invention. The oral becomes written by the poet himself and written, it should be added, by his right hand, worked by his left hemisphere. The muses have become imaginary and invoked in their silence as a part of man's nostalgia for the bicameral mind. Oh, that is gorgeous. Yeah, and the whole book is is filled with passages like that that are just beautifully written and uh, and, and just really drive home, often emotionally, the subject matter. That's another reason I guess I got to be skeptical and suspicious of this hypothesis is that it's so well written. I feel like (laughs) I need to be especially cautious about it. Like he, he communicates it so well and it's so beautiful in the book. That uh, that it's like getting an unfair advantage as a scientific hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, I, I I can definitely get that argument. Maybe that's why most scientific papers are so horrible to read. Like why <laughs> you know it's really rare you come across the one that's really well well written, and it's because well maybe uh, maybe you shouldn't let your writing skills make it stand out more than the theory itself deserves in terms of content. 
All right. Well, what's another um, lingering example of uh, of the bicameral mind? Hey, can you think of a state in which people have altered consciousness or reduced consciousness and a tendency to obey verbal commands? Ooh, sounds a lot like hypnosis to me. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. Now, we've talked about hypnosis on the podcast before, but just to reiterate, what's going on with hypnosis is people seem to have wildly differing levels of susceptibility to hypnosis. Some people just can't be hypnotized. But for those that can, hypnosis does seem to be a genuine altered state of consciousness at some level in which the body's relaxed, focus is narrowed, inhibition is lowered, consciousness is reduced, and verbal obedience is increased. Sounds kind of like the model of bicamerality. With a lot of these public demonstrations of hypnosis that you see, you know, where you're on a cruise ship and somebody's doing a show, I think people following the hypnotist commands is not necessarily always a highly altered state of consciousness. It could be partially just a performance brought on by social pressure. But this is actually part of Jane's theory. He talks about the idea of collective cognitive imperative. Group pressure enables different states of mind, and this is why you can have uh, a, basically a uh, culture dictating which mindset you adopt, the bicameral mindset or the conscious mindset. And it's also the reason that you can, through these elaborate rituals, say like the Oracle at Delphi, produce these uh, these amazing, uh, you know, uh, metered prophecies out of your right brain. Because group cognitive pressure is putting you into that mindset. And so he's saying hypnosis may be, may be in fact a modern reapproximation of the left brain operation of a bicameral person. But instead of having the right brain talk, you're having the hypnotist talk. Hmm. And again, this makes me think of yoga classes where I just let the individual tell me what to do uh, for an hour and a half. And it, it feels so liberating. Now, another big area uh, that, uh, that Jane spends a lot of time with is the condition of schizophrenia. Now, this is obviously going to be very relevant because it one of the features of schizophrenia is hallucinations, especially auditory hallucinations. Yeah, it is a condition defined by voices, by auditory hallucination, voices that criticize, voices that tell us what to do. It with, with under the tent of the bicameral mind hypothesis, it would seem to line up uh, pretty well. And uh And so Jaynes argues that schizophrenia is essentially a relapse into the bicameral mind. Wow. Now, he argues that in the sculptures, literature, murals, and other artifacts of the great bicameral civilizations, we do not see instances of individuals who suffer madness in a way that differentiates them from their fellow humans. There's idiocy, but but he says there's no madness. Uh, there, like, there's no insanity in the Iliad, for instance. Yeah. Now, by the time we get to Plato, Plato speaks of madness, but in these ancient civilizations, Jane says you don't see it. Yeah, he says that the first instance of insanity discussed in the conscious period uh, is in uh, Phaedrus, uh, where Plato calls insanity quote a divine gift and the source of the chiefest blessings granted to men. Hmm. And then he goes on to uh, Plato ends up identifying four types of madness. And you'll and just again think of the bicameral mind in reference to all of these prophetic madness, right? Ritual madness, yeah. Poetic madness, and of course erotic madness. Huh. Okay. So these kind of line up with some of the categories we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Greeks wrote on paranoia. Uh, he argues, which is literally having of two minds. Yeah. Over time, however, madness is no longer it no longer has these sort of divine categories that Plato uh, uh, identified, but it becomes a part of an ill, a part of a disease. There's something there's an ailment at work with the human being. Now, this may be Jane's thinks as there is more conscious takeover of society by the conscious culture 
that it becomes untenable for for uh, bicameral society to exist and work within itself. So people who experience the bicameral mindset within a conscious culture have uh, they essentially have no cover. They have no <laughs> nobody to, like, be part of their culture. Right. Now, he also points out that the voices of schizophrenia, these tend to be uh, when I say the voices of schizophrenia, the voices heard by individuals. Uh, with schizophrenia, uh, they tend to be authority figures created out of cultural expectation. And the hallucinations also seem to have access to more memories than the patient. They're, uh, in many cases, and in many cases, they replace thought. Yeah. The, they frequently take on religious overtones because, he says, the condition emerges from the neurological structures bound to the birth of religious thought to begin with. Right. And he says that the, the, the there's also a, f- a frequency of religious experience uh, overall in the waking state uh, for human consciousness, the the uh, hypnopompic state that is often accompanied by vivid lingering imagery. We've discussed this in terms of sleep paralysis and supernatural experience before. Yeah. James writes that these parts of the brain are, quote, released from their normal inhibition by abnormal biochemistry in many cases of schizophrenia and particularized into experience. This is also telling. He points to the relative inability of schizophrenics to draw a person. Think again to our discussions of I and me. There's this uh, draw a person test or adapt test, and it's used to help identify schizophrenia and other conditions uh, by asking the individual to draw a person. Now, if you have trouble drawing a whole person, that kind of makes me think about those disembodied body parts you talked about with reference to the Iliad. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, and I have to point out, this is another thing I see my son having to do on kindergarten tests yeah. and, uh, and evaluations, draw a person mm-hmm. and uh, and see. Uh, I mean, they're also looking to see with what degree of accuracy you can pull them together. But uh, but uh, yeah, in this case, are you able to draw a complete person at all? Now, not all people who have schizophrenia are going to have trouble drawing a person, right? Right. But when they do, it is uh, it is extremely diagnostic. Also, with schizophrenia, uh, narrativization can also become impossible. Right. You see these, like, fractured self-story right. issues. Mm-hmm. And then there's also body image boundary disturbance or boundary loss. And this again, this ties into this, uh, this lost uh, sense of I or me. And remember, too, uh, that schizophrenia has a genetic inherited basis to the underlying biochemistry. Natural selection, uh, uh, Jane's argue, would have favored it for a while. There's a certain tirelessness in schizophrenic individuals. They seem to have a lot of energy. And in the bicameral individual, this would have become, this would have become very important if you were, say, building pyramids or other great works. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about one of the advantages or one of the possible advantages of a bicameral mind would be mental endurance. Yeah. Much more so than a conscious person could muster. So Jane's basically says that the modern schizophrenic is an individual that's essentially in search of a bicameral culture. Mm. Quote, but he retains usually some part of the subjective consciousness that struggles against this more primitive mental organization that tries to establish some kind of control in the middle of a mental organization in which the hallucination ought to do the controlling. In effect, he is a mind barred to his environment waiting on gods in a godless world. Oh. Okay, so are you convinced yet, Joe? (laughs) I mean, it's tough because I do find his argument very compelling but uh, it just may be the case that he was wrong about how uh, about some of the evidence that he claims or about how he interprets some of that evidence. Uh, so I don't know. I, I find the bicameral mind thesis very interesting and very compelling, but I do not consider myself convinced that it is correct. 
True. And with like with the schizophrenia evidence, for instance, is this is this truly more uh, evidence in support of bicameral mind theory or is this schizophrenia as explained with bicameral mind? Yeah, I mean, one way you could look at the bicameral mind is you could say it's a theory that explains a lot or you could say that it is a very interesting, carefully conducted story that's overlaid on lots of evidence that we already knew about. Yeah. Uh, so what would be really interesting about it would be, can it predict new discoveries? Ah. Like, based on the assumption of the bicameral mind hypothesis, would you be able to predict we'll find X, Y, and Z about the ancient world and about uh, neuroscientific discoveries in the future, say, with, you know, uh, uh, neuroimaging? And that would be a real good way of testing whether it has any predictive power and thus whether we can have any confidence that it will continue to have predictive power in the future, which is pretty much synonymous with saying there's something to it, that it might be true. Uh, so I, I tried to look up, you know, what have people said about it? And the theory, it's had lots of critics. It has lots of people, you know, it's always been controversial ever since it was first introduced. It's had supporters. Some people think that it's uh, it's really interesting. It, there's something to it. Some people think it might shed some light on some issues, even if it's wrong overall. It's had a lot of people who think it's just bunk. So, you know, there, there's uh, opinions all over the place. One paper I found that I thought summarized well some of the neuroscientific uh, evidence and implications is a paper by Leo Scher published in the Journal of Psychology or Psychiatry and Neuroscience in 2000. Uh, Leo Scher is a professor of psychiatry at Mount Sinai in New York, and in the short piece, he collects some relevant reactions to Jane's hypothesis and argument. Uh, some reactions to Jane's include he finds that in 1987, Assad and Shapiro published a criticism of Jane's work in the American Journal of Psych Psychiatry, and they write, quote, The difficulty which we find with Jane's hypothesis is that the conclusions he draws have a questionable basis in neuropsychiatric fact, and, quote, if Jane's hypothesis were to coincide more accurately with anatomic fact, you know, facts about what we find in the body, the right temporal area in question would more likely coincide with Broca's expressive area, a notion that does not conveniently fit Jane's theoretical constructs. Assad and Shapiro also claim, according to Scher, that, quote, lesions of the right-sided areas corresponding to Broca's and Wernicke's areas seem more related to the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, like restricted affect, than to the positive hallucinatory symptoms, unquote. And they also claim that Jane's oversimplified the phenomenology of hallucinatory experience to make them fit his hypothesis better. Hmm. Um, also in 1999, the International Journal of Psychophysiology published a letter that wrote, quote, after many years of psychophysiological studies, mainly carried out in the field of evoked neurocognitive bioelectrical events, I feel I can safely state that the concepts of the mind slash brain and the brain-slash-behavior dualisms with their ancient widespread and persistent philosophy are now all outdated, as are those of the bicameral mind or the double brain. Uh, then again, however, Cher says in 1999, a paper published in The Lancet by Olin claimed that research in neuroimaging has, quote, illuminated and confirmed the importance of Jane's hypothesis. Uh, and this research includes a paper in The Lancet in 1999 by Linux et al., in which a right-handed person with schizophrenia underwent neuroimaging during hallucinations, and the authors found that the auditory hallucinations occurred in the right hemisphere, but not the left hemisphere, which would match up with Jane's predictions, the predictions made by the bicameral mind hypothesis. Huh. 
So I'd say it's still in the realm of something that is interesting, but definitely not proven. Uh, but just imagine how fascinating it would be if more and more studies start lining up with stuff that could be predicted directly by the bicameral mind hypothesis. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the great thing about the about this uh, particular hypothesis is that we can continue to study it. We can continue to see how uh, how it potentially lines up with uh, with our modern scientific understanding of consciousness and the brain. So, yeah, I guess we can start wrapping up here. But I want to say in the end, though, I'm not convinced by it. I'm not advocating it as true. It's fascinating, very well argued. uh, I would say arguably quite brilliant in the way it pulls from so many disciplines into a coherent picture of a cross disciplinary hypothesis, but can't can't yet endorse it. Yeah, yeah, I I would. uh, I would agree. But it is. It is fascinating to use it as a thought exercise for looking back on past cultures. And, uh, you know, after I was reading it, I kept I was wondering, well, why don't we see this referenced in more works of fiction? Well, uh, it turns out uh, it was apparently one of the key influences on Neil Stevens' Snow Crash, uh, which we mentioned in our Tower of Babel episode. It's a cyberpunk classic that involves uh, linguistic uh, mimetic weapons, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know, go back and listen to that episode or certainly read Snow Crash if you want more on that. But I was not familiar with this book. There is a um, 2009 novel by Terence Hawkins titled The Rage of Achilles. And get this, it's a novel of the Trojan War told within the confines of the bicameral mind hypothesis. So uh, Odysseus is a uh, conscious modern man. In this, an Achilles is a bicameral killing machine. That is a brilliant concept for a novel. Uh, and if there's any truth to Jane's vision, this might have actually been possible. Like during the long, slow breakdown of the bicameral mind, conscious people and bicameral people would have had to encounter and deal with one another. Yeah. And can you just imagine all the difficulty that would create? Yeah, a bit for both sides, because on one hand, the uh, the conscious human is capable of deception that the bicameral human has no ability to. Like basically it comes down to that, that duel in uh, Game of Thrones between uh, – uh, the mountain and uh, what's his name? The uh, Oberyn Martell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where one is one is crafty and deceptive, and the other one is just pure brute strength and nonstop killing action. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying the mountain is bicameral, and the Red Viper of Dorne is conscious. I think so. And really, I mean, he only becomes more bicameral <laughs> as the <laughs> story progresses. All right. So there you have it. Uh, do you have anything else, Joe? No, I guess that's it for now. I I found this a really fascinating topic to explore. It's one of those that I've said this a few times now, but I just want to stress again. It's like I feel this conflict within me about ideas that are so cool. I feel like I have to be especially suspicious of them. Yeah. Like the more interesting they are, the more I feel like I have to really check my desire for it to be true. Yeah, especially an idea that's this expansive that concerns the history of our species and our civilizations and the very nature of consciousness. So it's not like buying into a single idea like, oh, well, actually, I think the Chinese discovered uh, North America, you know, before the Vikings, something like that, which I'm not saying that doesn't have large historical um, uh, ramifications, but it's not something that just affects the absolute understanding of our species and our way of thinking. Yeah. All right. Well, of course, we'd love to hear from all of you out there. What are your thoughts on uh, the bicameral mind? Do you buy into it? Do you do you think it's complete bunk? Do you have some sort of middle ground there? And what are some uh, really cool examples of its utilization in various works of fiction that you've encountered? Here's something I would like to employ your imagination on. 
if this could happen, if you could go from a bicameral mind to a conscious mind, how much more could human mentality change? Oh, yeah. Like if you go 3000 years into the future from now, could our mindsets be as different from from ours now as the conscious mind is from the hypothetical bicameral mind? Yeah. I mean, am I engaging in a bicameral experience when I let my uh, GPS device tell me where to drive? I don't know. <laughs> you totally relinquish conscious control. Yeah, I, almost. It's almost to, to that level that uh, I was uh, hanging out with my family over the weekend and my sisters were like asking me, like, why did you make this turn in that instead of this turn? And I'm like, I just do what the machine tells yeah. me to. Told I, me to drive into the ocean. Yeah, I put my trust in the machine. Uh, it's bad. It, by and large, there's a less uh, there's less of a chance that it will drive me in the ocean than I will drive me into the ocean. So <laughs> uh, that's how it shakes out. All right. Well, you can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find uh, all the episodes. Uh, you will find blog posts, videos. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and more. Hey, Facebook has that great uh, discussion module group where you can join up and you can uh, interact with us, but also other listeners uh, to the show, and you can uh, discuss episodes such as these with those individuals. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com Thank you.